Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. In the market for investment worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry? Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello, and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey, all. Dr. Santosh here, pediatric infectious disease doc and a researcher. And we're back. It's <laughs> season 10. I mean, if this is your first time listening to us, hi. Hello. Hi, welcome. But we're 10 you... years old. Yeah. <laughs> With this many holds up digital yeah. fingers. <laughs> So Josh doesn't do pediatrics, and so he doesn't know that 10-year-olds can weigh, say, they're 10 years old without having to show you on your fingers. <laughs> but we are totally this many. Yeah. <laughs> I'm excited. Like we've I'm been, so happy. We've been doing I, this for a decade. Yeah, and thanks to all of you folks for, you know, listening to us and, you know, giving us feedback and, you know, getting our our brand new ebook uh which is available if you decide to join our awesome awesome mailing list. And yeah, you you you're you folks keep us going along with our absolute love of nerdy medical knowledge. So it's it's made everything so exciting that I I think I feel my blood pressure going up a few points. You've got a little bit of feeling of like, you know, Russian, you know, blood to your head with a little bit of a buzz and a headache and all Not, that fun stuff. I'm so excited. <laughs> and I just can't hide it. <laughs> Is that the one you're going to pull the, what do you call it, the cord? And the water's going to fall on you? Is that the right movie, Flashdance? My blood pressure's out of control, and I do not like it. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, wait, are you doing one of your famous Dr. Dworetsky segues into <laughs> our topic for the day, even though our listeners have more than likely gleaned what it is by looking at your punny, punny title? Well, I figured... 
we're coming back and we need to open season 10 with something big, something that everyone can relate to, something that about 15% of the world's population has. Oh, dear. <laughs> that's, and that's, that's a lot and that's of one of my favorite from the hospitalist hat trick, high blood pressure, not high cholesterol yeah. or diabetes, just yes. Just blood pressure. So it's it's the devil on your shoulder, the wormwood to your denethor. It's the gateway disease that leads you to other more complex diseases. Yeah. It's gone by nicknames from hard pulse, hypertension, Bright's disease. And as one of the oldest problems, surely we must know what causes it, right? So the number one <laughs> cause is essentially a hypertension. Yeah essential exactly it's it is it is essential <laughs> and if all of you out there are listening thinking that that tells you nothing yeah yeah go with that feeling <laughs> all right all right, all right. Josh, what if what if we that, called it that, primary yeah. hypertension instead well, of just oh, oh, abs yes essentially oh, yeah, hypertension. Yeah. <laughs> i mean we could confess our knowledge you know in the in the best way possible and call it you know idiopathic <laughs> just sounds absolutely like idiot named this pathology <laughs> This is all to say that this is one of these diseases. And just like you said, Josh, thousands of years, you know, studying this disease from different angles. But essentially, haha, we know that there are many different reasons that a person gets to the point of having high blood pressure. We know that it's variable. We know that there's many different causes for one person that feed into it, eventually making you hypertensive. But we have no way of unifying all that knowledge and being like, here it is. <laughs> so 15% of the world's population of what, like 8 billion people has hypertension. We're, we're coming up on eight, go, 8 going on 9. And of the people who have it, that 15% of the world's population, so let's just say 1 billion, 95% uh, <laughs> of all cases in humans are this hypertension of unknown cause. The remaining 5%, yeah. usually kidney or endocrine disease, and we, the ones we can explain, less interesting, so we just call those secondary hypertension. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. So you can either have primary or essential hypertension, or you can have hypertension secondary too. I actually like to think of high blood pressure more of like a symptom rather than actually explaining the, the disease itself. And that helps me wrap my mind around it. But we'll, I know we're going to talk about it more in a bit, Josh, but what happens in essential hypertension is multiple factors coming together to put you in a situation where there is basically stress on the pipes, right? So, you know, all the bad things that you can do to your arteries by putting too much flow and pressure to them that could cause them to tear, get a clot, all these kind of things. That's what the problem is. And essentially, we don't really care about the hypertension itself. We care about what it eventually does to you. So how long have we known about it? Well, I usually don't dust this off until later in the season, 
But yeah, Satosh, you, have to, you have to ease people into, you know, this depth of your nerdiness. If, but yeah, if you wander around over here underneath this large shapeless cloth, oh uh, my God. we can hip hop in the way back machine. Oh, oh, man, this this is brings back some memories. <laughs> Get it? Because it's a way. I'm sorry. No, it, it brings memories back. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Josh. Well, tell me. Tell me who's back, back again. So, uh, oh my God, we're back again. <laughs> Podcast listeners, everybody say yeah. <laughs> that the oldest documented actually is from 2600 BCE. Oh. And that's over in Asia. The Chinese emperor's classic of internal medicine notes mm-hmm. that even back then, if too much salt is used in the blood, the pulse hardens. Oh. So, and treatment of hard pulse disease included things like acupuncture, venesection, or you know, cutting veins open, or bleeding by leeches. Yeah, and one, they're talking about something that we still use to this day as uh, you know, symptomatic diagnostic criteria. <laughs> where Josh, if you're doing that to this day, you may need a new primary care doctor. No, no. I'm gonna take it one at a time. <laughs> no, I okay. Uh, I, I do not put leeches on anybody. <laughs> <laughs> and nor do I cut open veins. I am not a vascular surgeon. No, no. The the first part of it, talking about a hard pulse, this is one of the best ways. Uh, and it, it does happen in later stages of hypertension. But as the arteries actually harden with atherosclerosis and the pressure gets higher and higher, when you put your fingers to the pulse, whether it's on the wrist or on the neck, on the jugular or carotid or any of these areas, one of these symptoms that you'll feel is the pulse smacking, really hitting hard against your fingertips. And you have to, you know, examine a lot of people to understand what soft and hard feels like in terms of pulse. But that's a beautiful description right there from, you know, 4,000 years ago, Josh, a well, little less than 4,000 years ago. If you want a nice description, we can go out to 1500 BC and, oh, take, nice. and take a look at the Ebers papyrus. That's well, right, Josh, ancient Egypt. Yeah. First episode of the season. Oh, in Egypt! Yeah. <laughs> Wait, I I don't think I've asked this question before. Our way back time can move through time and space. I mean, I guess it would have to, but legally, I can't say. Oh, okay. But but we are. I mean, we did hit the switch and move up uh, a, a a thousand, uh, maybe eleven hundred years to fifteen fifty two. Listen, in, the world's in, in an orbit. Let's just assume we show up where we need to be. <laughs> All right, take us to ancient Egypt, Josh. So reading the Ebers Papyrus, uh, one of the oldest medical records from, well, ancient Egypt, it states, to know the movements of the heart and to know the heart. From the heart arise the vessels which go to the whole body. If the physician lay his finger on the head, neck, hand, epigastrium, the arm or the leg, everywhere the motion of the heart touches him, coursing through the vessels to all the members. When the heart is diseased, its work is imperfectly performed. The vessels become inactive so that you cannot feel them. If the heart trembles, has little power, and sinks, disease is advancing. 
If you examine a man for illness in his cardia, and he suffers from pain in his arms, breast, and one side of his cardia, death threatens him imminently. Which, just, wow. Not yeah. a lot has changed. Oh, but, I, well, I'll tell you one thing's just changed, man. Medical journals nowadays need to read like that. <laughs> this is this is boring ass text that we write out of you know <laughs> that's so it's poetic it's so gorgeous it's so good and it pretty accurately describes low blood flow in things like heart attack or possibly stroke right. even atrial fibrillation yeah and so uh, this is the opposite right they're they're talking about when um the pulse is becoming weak and and so this would be when your peripheral blood pressure the the, the pressure going out to your body and your arms and your legs is getting weaker um, because the heart is unable to pump or you know possibly other reasons but this idea of to know the movements of the heart from the heart arise the vessels which go to the whole body and you can you know you can find the heartbeat everywhere like this is such a it's a such a beautiful observation no echocardiograms ultrasounds any of this stuff just an excellent clinical exam to tell you if your patient is sick or not i love it and we even can jump up to 1000 AD when mm -hmm. Avicenna or the Arabian physician poet Ibn Sina, yep. uh, just I'm only mentioning him because there's a great line in there about the pulse. Differences okay. in pulsation mean illness and causation, which is oh, yeah. <laughs> way better than correlation and does not imply yeah. causation. <laughs> I really like that. Yeah, yeah. So it, they're they're telling you um, in this case differences in pulses. So either you know it's changed from you know you've seen a patient before and their their pulses have changed, or even in the same patient, if you feel a difference in pulse from right side to left side or something like this, there's pathology somewhere because you know the pulse should be fairly even throughout the body, especially symmetrically. So that's that's so cool. I'm I'm sure it's even more beautiful in like the original Arabic. Um, but yeah, I I love that day and age. And we do have some folks who are like this now. They are doctors and poets. But I personally feel that to get back to good medicine, our science writing has to get back to some poetry, man. So if we've known just from palpating the pulse that we can estimate or predict the blood pressure. When did we start paying attention to it as an entity of clinical importance, do you think? Um, I mean, it sounds like all the way back to the, you know, the Chinese Yellow Emperor's classic, you know, they, they knew it was a, a problem. They knew and we would have to have standardization and measurements of pressure uh, and things like that before like a sphygma manometer or something. The, the blood pressure cuff thingy could be, could be invented. So Is it something like that? So we had to kind of work our way through the, the ancient history of high blood pressure first. And okay. it was originally, and not incorrectly, believed to be a disease of the kidneys. So okay. Oh, okay. After, after hard pulse disease, the next nickname wasn't until 1836 when Richard Bright noted a link between diseased-looking kidneys and mm -hmm. cardiac hypertrophy or muscular overgrowth of the heart. Oh, and okay. he saw this in so many patients that he had the pathology named Bright's disease for his trouble. 
So diseased kidneys <laughs> with muscular heart. Uh, <laughs> now, so wait, so he actually usually diseases are named in honor of like, so someone will name it after their mentor or something like that. He just went up and like, this is mine. It's my disease. You can yeah. <laughs> well, well, you can have it, but you don't want it. Yeah, exactly. In 1850, George Johnson came to the rescue in defense of Bright, suggesting the lesions and changes seen in the kidneys were actually an adaptation to elevated blood pressure. So, you know, oh, a feature, okay. not a bug. Gotcha. Okay, so as the, you know, the the way we sometimes think about it now is that as essential hypertension proceeds apace, then it starts affecting the end organs, such as the liver, kidneys, heart, etc. So you're, you're seeing the consequence rather than the original cause. But this became a real chicken and egg debate. And it took a Indian physician an English physician of Indian descent who was one of the first to incorporate blood pressure evaluation in the clinic. And that is Frederick Akbar Mohammed. Um, And he suggested high blood pressure could exist without renal disease that it could cause rather than result from. So you can have normal looking kidneys and still a diseased heart or vessels. Now the sphygmomanometer, and isn't that fun to say, (laughs) <laughs> I uh, go ahead and listeners, if you want to either pause, uh, you know, say it out loud a few times, especially if you're in the car, you know, and you just want to, you know, here, I'll or, or, cue it. I'll cue it up for you. Do, 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 do. Spigmo manamana. All right. Yeah, you. Run that a few I, times. I <laughs> dare you to think of it any other way now. <laughs> All right. Uh, a little pause and welcome back all you wonderful people who just you know repeatedly shouted sphygmomanomena out into the sphygmomanomena <laughs> by italian physician Scipione riva rochi oh okay. so, no, well I'll, let's bridge that so the actual sphygmomanometer was invented by this doctor riva rochi in a riva, yeah <laughs> In okay. 1896, yeah, finally had a external means of measuring blood pressure, largely by cutting it off. And you would look at oh, you would look at the cuff pressure at which you could no longer feel a pulse because you had created a tourniquet upstream. That's great, but you know, Santos, we always talk about the lub and the dub and different sounds you hear when checking the pulse. And those weren't discovered until 1905, almost a decade later. Oh, I'm I'm sure they were uh, like they were described before, like the the beating of the heart, but they weren't kind of like systemically described or systematically described. When Russian physician Nikolai Korotkov described the sounds heard when you listen to an artery with a stethoscope, while the sphygmomanometer cuff is deflated. Oh, okay. So he, you know, the original intent of the stethoscope, of course, to listen to the heart. I can't remember the wonderful physician who invented it, but I remember him writing that poetic uh, scene about putting his uh, ear against the chest of a well-endowed woman. And he he had to find a way to better examine the heart. And so he came up with the stethoscope. But he took that tool and he said, hey, what if I auscultate? What if I listen to the pulses 
but in a different spot, you know, let's, follow the vessels that come let's from be the- honest. He invented it to listen to a heartbeat and lungs through a lady's bosom. And then yeah. he started saying, I wonder what else I can put this on. If people are unsuspecting, <laughs> I'm listening to everything. I can hear yeah. the human body, but That's we're talking awesome. about blood pressure. Whenever we are talking to patients or if you're watching television and somebody has gone to a medical clinic, uh, What's something that television doctors and their real life counterparts almost always tell people on a standard visit? Take down your pants. No, uh, it was uh, cough. You can cough. No, I'm. I'm okay, let's say. let's let's focus maybe on <laughs> on lifestyle changes. Oh yes, yes, yes. So universally, right? Um, eat fresh fruits and vegetables, more fresh fruits and vegetables, less processed food and exercise. Yeah. yeah and the less processed food is usually because you want to decrease your salt intake. Right. Now, would you say there is a link between salt and blood pressure? So I remember uh, I, I went to medical school from 2003 to 2007 and I remember that there, this was still a matter of debate. And I'm sad to say, because I, I went into pediatrics afterwards, and we have a different uh, workup and everything of, of uh, high blood pressure in, in kids. So I lost the thread of, you know, what has happened so far with the evidence. Um, between- oh, I mean, it's been pretty well proved since 1904. Oh, okay. So it's okay. So I thought, okay. The other things that I heard about and stuff probably were like pop medicine and stuff like that. That was stupidly trying to refute the evidence. Okay. Got it. I mean, well, we'll get into normal blood pressures in a moment, but in, in France, 1904, Ambert and Bougeard were the very first to prove there was a link between sodium and blood pressure. And because this is about the Frenchest study I could possibly imagine. <laughs> okay. All right. Go ahead. They spent three weeks uh-huh. studying just six patients with high blood pressure, and yeah. they varied the intake of salt by giving them three diets. So okay. each of each pair of patients got a diet while these French guys were sitting there smoking cigarettes, holding baguettes, wearing berets, and drinking <laughs> wine. <laughs> And the three diets included (laughs) very little salt, but two liters of milk and dairy products per day. So a lot of cheese. The second had a little bit of salt, but in addition to the two liters of milk, had a bunch of protein, meat, and eggs. Okay. And the third consisted of two liters of milk plus two liters of broth containing 10 and a half grams of salt. 10 and a half grams? Yep, for three weeks. Okay, just to let everybody know, uh, and and maybe we'll talk about this a little bit later. I think our our USD recommended is measured in milligrams. I think it's two thousand gra- milligrams or two grams, right? In in one day. Yeah, so <laughs> ten grams of salt. Well, and this is because in the early nineteen hundreds, the theory of high blood pressure was believed to be protein toxicity or protein excess. So these guys kind of proved a link with salt accidentally, and they measured it by estimating the amount of salt excreted in the urine each day. 
What? Okay. You know, <laughs> also, that's they probably just need more <laughs> out than they than they brought in. Um, well, I mean, they uh, okay. Oh, gotcha. Okay, so they didn't do an actual thing where because uh, I think back then you'd have to boil off the urine and then measure the salt content. Um, Essentially, they noted that the salt group had a higher blood pressure when they were expecting to find the low protein groups with lower blood pressures. Oh, got it, got it, got it. Okay. So this didn't come up again until the 1920s when researchers Allen and Cheryl described 180 patients with severe blood pressure who were given a low salt diet, but normal protein. And the blood pressure in 20% of them came back to normal. And in 42% of them, the amount of blood pressure drop was sufficient enough to be regarded as therapeutically successful, whereas complete failure occurred in a third of them. So a third of know. people, no, no effect on blood pressure from low salt diet, just under a third, a normal effect or complete recovery, and just under half, um, you know, enough to say that there's been a difference. So yeah. then... Bright's disease became salt nephritis. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. And I, I do understand. Uh, I'm going through a little bit of my reasoning and, and my mind, what I'm thinking of. So, this proved a very strong correlation and association with salt intake um, leading to, high, you know, high blood pressures and, and you know, pathologically high blood pressures. But at least for some, it wasn't the whole story. Because, you know, they cut their salt and and they still had high blood pressure. Well, decreasing your salt was the fad diet of the 1920s and 30s and done with about as much effect as fad diets today, meaning (laughs) it had its proponents, but by and large did not have replicable results. So... Well, the lore, the lore carried on all the way, right? Because even when we were kids, Saturday morning cartoons and that kind of stuff, because you'd have the, you know, the toys commercials for the kids and then the adult commercials, uh, not adult like that, but, you know, like for grownups and stuff, you would uh, inevitably now with low salt. It looked like in the early 1930s, people had given up on a link between salt and blood pressure. And this was the case until 1948 where researcher Kempner had devised a diet to treat high blood pressure that was low in fat, contained 20 grams of protein, and less than half a gram of salt per day. Uh, I'm going to save you the trouble of thinking what that would look like, and it was rice and fruit. Oh, oh, okay. His diet was so low in salt that the 24-hour urinary excretion at the end of two months was usually less than a quarter gram. So less than you oh. would less than you would shake onto a meal in a modern American diet yeah. was was put out in the urine at the end of two months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So essentially, the two grams per day that we think of in a full grown adults around seventy kilograms. Um, you know, they uh, seventy kilogram weight for the adult, not the amount of salt. But yeah, we we think about that two grams because. 2,000 milligrams or two grams is about how much we lose. So our suggestion is just replace what you've lost. And so if you're talking about like 250 milligrams or 0.25 grams, that is a very small number. And again, this was an accident. He was trying to show that high blood pressure 
can be lowered by low protein. That's why 20 sure. grams of protein. And he didn't want to admit that he had, beyond any shadow of a doubt, proved that low salt can do it. So he had the effect of his diet on 500 patients and published it. And he has chart after chart that shows falls in blood pressure, chest radiographs showing a decrease in heart sizes, which if you have an overgrown muscly heart mm -hmm. from having to pump all that blood yeah, that's up not a good thing. through your body. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> or EKGs that showed rhythm abnormalities, which you can see with an overly swole heart, mm -hmm. would revert to normal. And even photographs of damage in the retina, where you have microcirculations that can be damaged by high pressure, that had improved. So amazing results. He also, however, made no mention in his report of complications associated with such rapidly induced reductions in salt intake. And okay. the only reason he was so successful is he collected all the urine excreted every day from each patient. Uh, <laughs> if you recall, 500 patients. Yeah. So by the time he saw them in the ward, he knew exactly how much salt they were excreting. And therefore, he knew how much they had eaten. Oh, Mr. Johnson, I see your pee. Someone had an extra slice of mashed potatoes today, right? <laughs> so this man went OCD on the urine, just like, you know, and, and then would shame his patients. Into, oh, you know, well, the paper was great. Kempner's reactions when they had aired were yeah. such that the patients were unlikely to air again. Oh. <laughs> he he pee-shamed his patients. I told you. No, yeah. more salt. <laughs> checking the urine every single day. So this is, you know, it's post-World War II, you know, Geneva Accords and everything. But I would put this under not terribly ethical. Um, when you want to genuinely find the effect and you don't want to confound stuff, um, you shouldn't be going in and pressuring your subjects and stuff to be <laughs> complying. Oh, um, contraire. Oh, contraire, oh? mon frere. Because, okay. again, we as a nation were not taking blood pressure seriously, despite the fact that it had been proven time and time again to be linked to low salt. People were like, all right, so salt can lower your blood pressure. Who cares? What's the big deal about high blood pressure? Right, right. And that's the problem, right? It will go on for decades before it causes consequences. So... If we're in the era around World War II, I want you to name me a figure who had massively untreated high blood pressure that ultimately led to their death. Oh, okay. <laughs> are we going with Hitler? No. No. <laughs> no, he was uh, he was vegan. He his blood pressure was oh, probably no, fine. he was just fine. Was it what uh can you tell me was it on a, uh, any of the other world leaders? Well, yes, or this would be a much less interesting podcast. <laughs> was it our president? It was. It was Roosevelt. Oh, okay. oh Rose. Oh, FDR. Okay. So, so Roosevelt was first diagnosed with high blood pressure at age 54. Okay. Uh, which went untreated for at least four years when he got massage therapy and phenobarbital for a blood pressure reading of 190 over 105. In wow. 1941. Um, <laughs> that's pretty high. We yeah, don't so... <laughs> like that as doctors. And we're... Uh... 
<laughs> okay, and we're going with rather than you know salt and everything else like this and and at lifestyle changes, we're trying to you know massage the yeah you know, because with this high blood pressure, almost a hundred percent, there's going to be jitteriness and you know you're you're going to feel horribly crappy and and frenetic and all this kind of thing. So they're trying to massage it away, and then the phenobarb I'm guessing was you know for the anxiety part of it. But in general, as a downer, it probably had some marginal effect on on dropping the blood pressure a bit. So in 1945, at the Yalta Conference, Roosevelt was noted to be in failing health with heart failure, shortness of breath, lethargy and drowsiness. So it sounds like maybe some obstructive sleep apnea, heart failure, you know, complications of high blood pressure. But how high could it be? Oh, you know. 260 over 150. You're so full of crap, Josh. Physicians, we don't like that. Yeah, that's that's beyond hypertensive emergency. Like that person would, you know, if you triage that person in the ER, they'd get sent straight up to the ICU. On the morning of April 12th, 1945, Roosevelt reported a severe headache while sitting for a portrait session. He subsequently lost consciousness and died with a blood pressure of, oh, where was, uh, 300 over 200. (laughs) Josh, this is like, this is the blood pressure in an elephant or a giraffe. Like, this is insane. Wait, hold on a second. Hold on. Normal blood pressure of a giraffe. Yeah, 280 over 180 is a giraffe. He had actuarial data from insurance companies since the 1930s that Mm -hmm. showed the relationship between high blood pressure and mortality from heart or kidney disease. But it wasn't until Roosevelt died as a result of all these complications of high blood pressure, that management became more widely practiced and people started focusing on control. Before then, there were very few drugs and most of them were poorly tolerated. So you had strict sodium restriction, the Kempner diet, with somebody collecting your pee and yelling at you like Hell's Kitchen. (laughs) You had uh, pyrogen therapy, which is just let's inject some bacteria like typhoid and have you sweat the blood pressure sweat down. Sweat it out? Yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, you, had, yes. you had, oh, well, this is a fight or flight response, so let's just start excising your you know, nervous system with a symphectomy. Oh. Oh, oh, okay. And, and, and adrenalectomy. Okay. <laughs> oh, oh, jeepers. Okay. Okay. Uh, and you had sodium thiocyanate, but toxicity and marginal effectiveness kind of limited its use. Yeah, as in, so for those people who don't know, the thio part is a sulfur compound, and cyanate is, yeah, it's it's a cyanide compound, and it would eventually break down into cyanide. Um, it had a therapeutic window, but it was quite narrow. <laughs> so not surprisingly, when oral diuretics were developed in the mid-1950s, and the first one was chlorothiazide called diaril, a diuretic pill. Eh? <laughs> it's catchy. It's simple. Way to go, madman. So, uh, yeah, for, for those folks who don't know the uh, the lingo, uh, Dr. Josh is not saying like diuretic, like, you know, making <laughs> um, diuresis or, you know, so dia is the uh, the Greek, I believe, which is kind of meaning to like go through. 
So that's what diarrhea is. It just passes right through you. So dia and yuri. So diuria or diuretic would be something that makes the urine pass through. Not surprisingly, when these oral diuretics were developed, they increased excretion of salt through the kidneys. Okay. And this was considered a satisfactory alternative to a low salt diet and a way more convenient way of dealing <laughs> with the habitual high consumption of salt. So people were just like, oh, I'll just take this salt excreting pill. No need to change my dietary habits. Oh, damn it. <laughs> like almost from the go. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what we do as humans, right? If you tell me that I have to make, you know, extensive changes to my lifestyle that take effort uh, and all this kind of a thing versus I just have to pop this uh, and, you know, oh, this will help. And by the way, you're not going to know, like, right? You're not going to actually know the consequences of this until decades down the road. And who's to say, <laughs> you know, kind of a thing. Maybe not decades, years. Yeah. <laughs> so... We've been dancing around, and before we go back to fun historical facts, let's just talk about what is high blood pressure. I'm going to bet everybody who's watched a television show is shouting or quietly raising their hand, which it's your car or home, folks. It's all right. You can just shout it out. Yeah, it's uh, uh, <laughs> one, 120 over 80 is the normal number, I think, that's still tossed around in television. It, it is. Yeah. That's, that's what we usually hear. I believe that has changed, especially if you start factoring in risk factors. So um, if your family history of hypertension is very bad, if there are comorbidities like diabetes um, or, or, or uh, if you already have peripheral artery disease um, from, you know, eating like crap and not exercising, then that number does change. So nowadays, I think as of 2017 or 19, the most mm -hmm. recent guidelines say if you're going from 120 to 130, top number, and yeah. you're still under 80, you have elevated blood pressure. You know, at risk, uh, not terrible. And that also varies with age. If you're, you know, 80 years old and you have blood pressure of 120, we are dancing a jig as your yeah. physicians just <laughs> absolutely thrilled um yeah. if you're a teenager eh, unimpressed you know <laughs> you're just you're doing the bare minimum yes. uh, but if your blood pressure starts running with the top number being 130 to 140 that is stage one hypertension that is lifestyle changes and maybe depending on your risk factors from family starting a drug which likely yeah. will be a diuretic uh -huh. A water pill. Yep. It's going to make oh. you pee. Stage two hypertension is a blood pressure systolic top number 140 to 150 or a diastolic. That's when the bottom number starts becoming important over 90. Yeah, um, that's when you really start seeing more damage to microcirculations, especially if you're forming clots and other conditions like diabetes, little cholesterol plaques, or if you have atrial fibrillation that could be throwing tiny clots. That's stage two and above is really when we start worrying about longer term effects of high blood pressure. And if you have a Roosevelt era blood pressure in like 180, 200, <laughs> that's a problem. We don't like that. 
Yeah, so we start actually labeling these as uh, different categories altogether, like hypertensive urgency or hypertensive emergency. Oh, do you where, know the difference? Uh, I believe, if I if I recall properly, that urgency is uh, a certain cutoff of the number, and I don't remember what it is. But emergency, especially, is if you're having acute signs and symptoms of end organ damage. So if you're having headaches, vision changes, um, you know, you're, you're having heart symptoms, you know, like a chest pain and all these kind of things along with that high blood pressure um, and end organ damage in your kidneys where, you know, they've either shut down. Um, yeah. So th that kind of a thing. But uh, do you have a better definition for me, Josh? Well, I mean, if you want to get hung up on numbers, 180 systolic okay. of 180 or above is enough for hypertensive urgency. Uh, yeah. But you're right. It's the presence of end organ damage that goes from urgency, which is, well, that's concerning, to emergency, which is, oh, shit. Yeah. And sometimes the patient can feel it like, oh, I've got, I've got this headache that it won't go away. That's from blood rushing you know, through your head. Um, or it can be something that Dr. Josh and I find while we're examining you. So, you know, we actually take your pulse um, or we measure your, your you know, kidney output um, or we use the uh, ophthalmoscope and we look in the back of your eye and we see that there's actually like damage to the retinal vessels. Everybody oh. to kind of be on the same page. Systolic blood pressure is the lub, right? And diastolic is the dub. So what we're talking about is when your heart is actually squeezing and blood is really going through your arteries and everything else like that. That's the top number, systolic. And then diastolic is the phase of the heartbeat when the heart relaxes. And so that's the lowest blood pressure you get to. They, you should never get too high or too low. Uh, to I live. guess yeah. systolic is the amount of force to squeeze all the blood out of your heart to go where it needs to go. Yeah. And diastolic is the amount of relaxation as your water balloon of a heart fills up again. <laughs> it is. And you want to maintain that to a certain degree because if your blood vessels don't have tone in order to maintain that bottom number at a at a certain height for depending on your body physiology and everything, then you know, the most important part, your brain, right, that you should have a consistent flow of blood, you know, that's going to the brain. And that won't happen, it'll drop out. And then you can have, you know, the opposite low blood pressure, and you have fainting and stuff like that. So regardless of what stage you fall in, we often will try and treat to a goal of 140 over 90 or below. So it's okay, we're not thrilled with people being in stage one hypertension. But we like people to stay usually below 140 to 150. That's sort of yeah. the new modern day target range. If you're 120 over 80, fantastic. Um, and of course, there is white coat hypertension, which is the kind of high blood pressure where it's me. Hi, I'm the problem. It's me. <laughs> Just seeing yeah. the doctor and <laughs> having a Taylor Swift song playing in the background can raise your blood pressure. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, our blood pressure is supposed to go up when our sympathetic nervous system fires, right? So we want that blood pressure to be nice and high to maintain flow to all of our essential organs and everything if we're running away from something or 
You know, so that's the that's actually the kind of high blood pressure we like from time to time when you're getting good exercise and everything else like that. But if you're getting anxious, you know, just, you know, without running area, you're just getting shocked kind of a thing, then yes, temporarily you can have high blood pressure, which is why Josh, actually, I think we've switched over to yes, measuring blood pressure when you come to the office, but actually trying to get your blood pressure when you're relaxed, laying down at home is, and, and then getting multiple pressures so that we understand. Uh, well, you know, I usually tell patients, I usually tell my patients, you know, if you're going to weigh yourself, you're going to take blood pressure. The key is consistency. Do it at the same time every day rather than at various times because people who do not have high blood pressure and even those who do, your blood pressure has a natural variation throughout the day. When you wake up in the morning, it tends to surge and then it increases throughout the day, peaking, you know, around lunchtime. and. Yeah. Then at night, when you're sleeping, it tends to drop by about 10 to 20%. And for people who have high blood pressure, you have four other distinct patterns. They can have a normal drop in blood pressure when they're sleeping. That's about 10 to 20%, and we call that normal dipping. Then there's those who have extreme or double dipping, which is a drop of more than 20%. Uh, That runs into something we call orthostatic hypotension or positional changes, Mm -hmm. Then there's those who hardly dip at all, very polite, (laughs) non-dipping, less than 10%. Those tend to be people who have persistently high blood pressure, very difficult to manage. And those who experience, and this is the trickiest one, reverse dipping, where their blood pressure is higher when they're asleep than when they're awake. Yes. And and it seems paradoxical and weird, like why should that happen? But, you know, we don't understand everything, everything about the physiology of hypertension, but what's happening over time as you're putting, you're putting pressure on the pipes, right, Josh, you're, you're stressing them and you're wearing them out. But one of the things that our blood vessels do in response over a long period of time is they become fibrosed and stiff. When that happens and you don't have this like nice uh, elastic compliance, that means your highs can get really high and your lows can get really low and they can switch spots like this. And so weirdly enough, a symptom of having chronic high blood pressure can be fainting when you stand up, just like Dr. Josh said, orthostatic hypotension, because you actually don't maintain good blood pressure when you change posture from sitting to standing. It's basically a failure in the wiring. We call it autonomic dysfunction. Your body has little sensors in the neck that say, oh, when the person stands, we'd expect blood pressure to fall. Let's give it a little boost. boost, uh, Someone's asleep at the wheel there. And that's not what happens. And so you get up, your blood pressure falls, and hopefully you do not. Yeah, yes, exactly. There, there are a number of things where, of course, we're worried about end organ damage. Um, You know, how does your heart do with high blood pressure, your kidneys, your brain, all these things like this. But Josh, the consequence of this, uh, you know, blood pressure being so high can sometimes be something as scary as oh, they can't maintain good posture and upright and they get orthostatic and they're subject to falls and something, you know, like deadly, like head trauma from a bad fall. Or you can even have infarctions of muscles or organs like the kidney or the heart, because if your blood pressure is too low, 
you can't bring all that life-giving hemoglobin and oxygenated blood to an area if a muscle or an organ doesn't get sufficient oxygenated blood, it will start to die off. So blood pressure too high or too low can be a real danger, and you want to keep it just right. Now, right. here's a fun fact. Uh, <laughs> blood pressure, or its detection, is the reason we allow scientific evidence in court. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. No, this was okay. great. So... All right. <laughs> or I, you should say like non-scientific evidence, right? Because we're talking about stuff that's kind of been debunked. Okay. Look, there's, yeah. there's two different standards for whether or not you can admit some kind of scientific evidence into court. This isn't a legal podcast, so uh, yeah. we'll just okay. say there's the Fry standard and the Dolbert standard. Um, okay, okay. <laughs> sure. The Fry standard is uses something called the systolic blood pressure deception test. Great name. Oh. <laughs> fantastic name it's a precursor to the modern day lie detector test and based on the idea that blood pressure is influenced by a person's emotions now this is true we know yep. that having you know strong emotions can affect your blood pressure now here's where it gets fun the test claims that lying or deception causes a rise in blood pressure because it requires effort to hide the truth. You have a physiologic response, you become more anxious, your blood pressure rises. The test was invented by William Moulton Marston. Does that name ring any bells for you, Santosh? Oh, gosh. Um, yes, and I can't remember why. Tell because me, tell he's me. the creator of Wonder Woman with the lasso of truth. Oh, that's right. Now, yeah, because we, we did this in one of our comic book medicines way back when yes 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 william okay. moulton marston's a fascinating character he deserves a whole episode <laughs> just for himself but uh yeah. this systolic blood pressure deception test was used in the case fry versus the united states uh -huh. and they underwent the test and then they argued that the trial court aired by not allowing an expert witness to testify about how effective the test was or wasn't basically saying this lie detector test is a bunch of bunk. You can't use it to convict, to convict me. And because the only person who really knew how to work or read the lie detector was William Moulton Marston, the yeah. jury agreed. So the Fry standard means that science has to be commonly accepted to be admissible in court. And noting oh. the change of blood pressure and emotions was not enough to pass that standard but it was enough to create the standard so there you go medical legal fun facts <laughs> da, 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 da. yay <laughs> but yes uh we should say right now according to you know everything we have in terms of data the modern day lie detector is a load of crap so we shouldn't be using that one but yeah the biggest problem uh with all of this kind of the the root of it is that yes actually you know blood pressure does fluctuate when we're angry, sad, emotional, anxious, all these kind of things. But the correlate is not tight enough that you can actually draw solid and sensitive and specific conclusions. That's the problem. But let's go back to this salt and diet, because I know most of you are picturing in your head someone who's elderly. And by elderly, of course, I mean older than you at home. <laughs> yeah, just wherever you're at. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah but 
in a large study of 750 children, just a, and prepare to be horrified by some of these numbers I'm about to throw out, Santosh. Yeah, go, go, go. Just a two gram reduction in salt intake to a goal of seven grams a day induced yeah. a significant fall in blood pressure after six months. Someone that, was giving kids <laughs> seven grams a day of salt. Oh, God. <laughs> That's so much. I'm. So, I, I. I. This is unethical. <laughs> in a similar study, in thirty oh in thirty two adults, average yeah. age forty years. Okay. Reducing salt excretion from nine grams a day to four grams a day caused a significant fall in blood pressure at twelve weeks. Now, oh, okay. So All just right. dropping your salt by five grams a day could change your blood pressure at 12 weeks. So you may be asking, all right, well, what's five grams of salt? That's easy to cut out, right? Because <laughs> you're picturing a gram is about a paperclip, right? But remember what I said before, the amount of salt that you want and that you kind of turn over in your body and that you want to change out and everything else like that is in milligrams. Okay. So two grams, 2000 milligrams are, are actually cl maybe closer to 1500 um, is a small paper clip and a half. <laughs> no, 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 no. Santos, Santos. Let's, let's keep this with numbers people can understand. Oh, okay. Sure. Sure. Okay. A, ham a hamburger with French fries yeah. Pick your chain. Doesn't matter. They're all about five grams of salt. That's yeah. it. Just one one hamburger with an yeah. order, a small order of French fries, five yeah. grams of salt. Yeah, that's Just two, two and a half times more like uh, the times that you need in, in a day. <laughs> one less hamburger a day. Blood pressure has dropped at 12 weeks. Fantastic. Yes. Right? Uh, Great. Yeah. Huh? yeah. Um, in adults age 60 to 78, so we're hitting all our age ranges here, young, our age, old, a reduction in salt intake from about 10 grams a day to 5 grams a day. So again, the theme is cut your salt intake to about half of what it is. And in the elderly, if they just did it for four weeks, they reduced blood pressure by almost eight points on systolic. That almost brings you down an entire level from yeah, yeah, stage yeah. three to stage two. Uh, stage two to one, that's similar to blood pressure lowering drugs just by having your intake of salt. The way that we kind of go for this when we talk to a lot of people, especially on a Western diet, um, is, uh, you know, because of what we talked about, like the burger and fries and everything else like this, is if we can get folks to just stop eating out a lot less and especially stop going for the fast food however we're able to do that with the full acknowledgement that by the way people are stressed and it's the kind of world that we live in and all these kind of things but if we can get them to make their own food at home anything else like this just like you said josh one of those meals drops your sodium by so much and it is kind of insane how much less salt you consume when you salt your own foods that you cook at home. So the, the bulk of Western societies consume an average of eight to 12 grams of sodium <laughs> a day. So bad. <laughs> so bad. Yeah. I don't think you all listening at home appreciate just how much that is. Yeah. <laughs> We're talking about anyone from four to six days worth. You know. Recommendations. <laughs> 
are three to six, and yeah. we on average double that. Yeah, yeah. I, I, and I personally, I go for the the proper, like the the lower end, like the two grams. But I think that's like pie in the sky thinking. So I'll I'll take that back a little bit. <laughs> and if you're over fifty years of age, only twenty grams a day for about three to five days is enough to cause a rise in blood pressure. Whereas in young adults, teenagers and uh, 20-year-olds, they could have up to 30 grams of salt a day for over a week before it was noted to cause a rise in blood pressure. So yeah, there's, there's a definite age uh, yes. with things breaking down, getting rusty, I guess. Yeah, it's well, what happens is as we age, our ability to actually... Uh, basically tolerate extremes, whatever it is, lack of sleep, lack of exercise, too much exercise, too much calories, whatever it is. So when we're younger, our abilities to kind of either excrete and dump what we don't want, or, you know, kind of deal with all these stressors is much better than, you know, as we get older and older. It's it's one of the most principal, you know, basic things of aging. We love salt. We love salty stuff. Uh, if you're able to control the cravings and stuff for the salt as you get older, then the fact that your taste buds kind of dull as you get older and you want stuff to be more sugary, salty and things won't bother you as much. Stop eating now. You can taste food when you're old. <laughs> Kids today yeah. with their okay. salt. So uh, <laughs> let's, for those of you who are taking blood pressure medications, uh, mm -hmm. Some advice based on studies. Certain blood pressure pills, like water pills or diuretics, are best taken in the morning because they increase how often you urinate and you don't want to be getting up multiple times during the night. Uh, if you're on furosemide or Lasix, uh, most of the time that's given twice a day, but it is named because its duration of effect lasts up to six hours. Six. Another study called the Hygieia Chronotherapy Trial, fun names, <laughs> yeah, uh -huh. followed 19,000 Caucasian Spaniards, so Inigo Montoya, uh, <laughs> with yeah. high blood pressure for an average of six-fingered years. The results of this study basically had half the group take all their blood pressure medications at bedtime, while the other half took it in the morning. And it found that people who took their blood pressure medications, diuretics aside, at night had overall better control and were less likely to have a daytime cardiovascular event defined as a heart attack or stroke. Um, yeah. Those who used to take their blood pressure in the morning and switched to the night had a 44% drop in risk of heart attack or 40% yeah. reduction in the risk or need of surgery on the blood vessels. Uh, also a 49% reduction in stroke. So if you were taking your blood pressure pills in the morning, you may yeah. want to consider switching them to the evening after discussion with your primary care physician, which is the included caveat in anything that even remotely sounds like advice you ever hear. We are entertainers. <laughs> <laughs> on on this podcast educating yeah. ones yeah <laughs> yes we we will be your we will happily be your doctors face to face in the clinic but on this podcast damn it we're here for the ha-has because once we talk <laughs> about switching your medications tonight we can also talk about my favorite little used and for good reason 
blood pressure drug from the old era called reserpine. I remember that one. That's because by the time you and I entered practice, Santosh, it had already largely been discontinued. It's one of the few drug treatments shown to reduce mortality uh, in randomized controlled trials. So the hypertension detective and follow-up program, the Veterans Administration Cooperative Study, and the systolic hypertension in the elderly program. But it's still good enough to use as a secondary option for patients who cannot achieve their targets. Uh, okay. The daily dose, although it has a pretty high side effect profile, the daily dose is as low as 0.05 to 0.25 milligrams. And the reason I like it is, even though it's not really used in human blood pressure medications anymore, it is still used as a long-acting tranquilizer to subdue excitable or difficult horses. <laughs> And that means it's nice. one of the few blood pressure medications you could deliver through a dart gun. Hey! <laughs> I'm just, <laughs> just imagining the, you know, the physician casually sitting behind their desk, just like loading a thing. And it's like, all right, you know, Mr. Smith. I uh, guess it's time to start your therapy. So uh, I'm going to give you uh, 10 seconds. <laughs> Dr. Ms. Johnson, Dr. <laughs> Ms. Johnson is here uh, for her blood pressure appointment. Did she bring her rolling walker? Not yeah. this time. Good, yeah. good. <laughs> Click. <laughs> we know that salt intake and management is a huge part of you know, reducing essential hypertension and all of the consequences of that. Exercise is important. Good diet is also important too. But just like anything else, there are going to be other variables and factors that make people less and more prone to hypertension and the downstream effect. And there are a lot of studies that will link it. So uh, that's where I think we're going to end our very first episode. There's a lot coming up. This season, we've got some gamified things. Of course, we're going to have a ton of calls to pop culture. We'll probably work in at least a few interviews or two, and some old faces may come back. So it's the perfect time to sign up for our mailing list, find out when we'll be appearing out in the real world. Follow us on the social media, uh, TikTok and Twitter and wherever people are socializing on media. We'll be there. Josh? Josh? Yes? Did you did you leave the keys in the Wayback Machine? Oh no, are we still going way, way back? Josh, did you leave the key? Josh! <laughs> Alright, uh, I gotta go track down some plagues. The universe is about to implode in on itself. Josh! So, we'll, we'll keep this fast. Uh, <laughs> thanks everybody, welcome to our 10th season. This show is produced by me with a lot of help from Dr. Santos and friends. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. Um, if you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes, along with links for further reading, including sources we use in this episode. And, uh, I've gotta go! Gosh, matter is condensing! <laughs> catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? 
Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.